Welcome to Same Old Song, the lectionary podcast of Mockingbird Ministries, an organization that exists to connect the Christian faith with the realities of everyday life. As always and ever, I'm Scott Jones, your co-host, and in just a few moments, I'll be joined by Jacob Smith, the rector at Calvary St. George's Episcopal Church in New York City. Each week, Jake and I will endeavor to have a grace-infused cosmopolitan conversation about the lectionary texts for the week. We'll do our best to help both pastors and churchgoers alike to connect the same old song of God's redeeming grace to what feels like an ever-changing and confusing world. And we'll do it all in 25 minutes or less. This is the first time that in the history of Same Old Song, which is not a long history, but it's the first time that Jacob Smith is not with me, sitting in for him, because Jake is in Israel, the Holy Land. Sitting in for him is Greg Strawbridge. Greg, we've talked about your lectionary devotional actually on the podcast before, and you are not just a co-host today, you're also a listener. That's right. I've been on the uh, receiving end of Same Old Song for many, many weeks now. Well, we are. Um, thanks for being willing to help us out in a jam here. And is there anything you want to shamelessly plug before we start shamelessly plugging the good news, the gospel that comes from these lectionary texts? This Absolutely. Week? I want to shamelessly plug wordmp3.com, my site that we put a lot of audio stuff out, uh, podcasts we've done even with Scott. We've done a few podcasts there ourselves, as well as uh, many lectures and conference uh, talks and sermons. It's a great, great site. WordMP3.com, great stuff. Yeah, it is a storehouse. If the, if you're kind of geeky theologically and you like uh, theological, religious, philosophical talks, lectures, roundtables, it is the treasure trove of that stuff on the interwebs. Yes, I we couldn't agree more. In fact, we have about 17,000 items available now for download. 17,000. Wow. That's a lot. And you also, your church is in Lancaster County, right? That's right. Lancaster, PA, uh, just a bit north of the city. And we have a liturgical service as well as a reformed theological kind of bent to our teaching. And the food is great. If you get there for coffee hour or for any of the times where they ever have meals, it is pretty amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Greg, our first election for the week comes from the book of First Samuel, one of my two favorite Samuels. Uh, and here we've got, um, oh, are you like brushing up against your shirt or something? I just heard a lot of like stuff. Oh, it didn't, it's not doing it now. Okay, perfect. Um, for our first lection is First Samuel, one of my two favorite Samuels in the Old Testament. We got First Samuel 16, 1 through 13. We got Saul, who was is the king of Israel, uh, who initially was in favor with God, but after disobeying the prophet Samuel's orders and then God's orders, he's kind of fallen out of favor. And in the beginning, it's really interesting because Samuel kind of has to get over it. God tells him, get over Saw. Like, we're moving on yeah. here. And he says, how long will you grieve over Saw? Uh, I've rejected him as the king over Israel. Now you've got to go to Jesse, the Bethlehemite, for there's a king among his sons. So has this is this at all relevant to your experience in life or ministry where like so you're fixed on an idea or a person that seemingly uh, is not 
the the person or the plan in God's timing, but like you can't let it go. Yeah, I think that's a great observation just to connect it to real life. Yeah, we often have those fixations. We say, you know, this is the way it should be. It's got to be this. And God is saying, no, it's not. That's not the what I'm going to that's not how I'm going to do it. In fact, that's the whole story of Christ, right? Christ did not show up in the anticipated fashion that almost everybody in the New Testament wanted. He showed up in a very different way. His purpose was very different than what uh, many Israelites were longing for. Yeah, I I think that that's absolutely right. And it's funny too because not only it's it's funny I was um my sermon last Sunday was called um why is my life so hard and I got the title from Freakonomics's most recent episode but basically these two psychologists wrote this paper about success and failure and the psychological mindset behind it and they talked about the tailwind headwind concept and basically the idea was that like if you're a runner or a cyclist you know you know when that headwind is in your face and the second it stops you're like oh gosh thank you I feel, it, it, but and you also know when the tailwind comes but you're not that grateful for it. Like people don't focus on it as long as they focus on the struggle with the headwind. And they were saying like this goes for siblings, for political parties. The Democrats think the Republicans have everything in their favor. Republicans think the Democrats have everything. Every sibling thinks that the other siblings have it easier. And everybody focuses on the things that they perceive are, are not meeting their expectation or holding them back. And it really stops them from enjoying life <laughs> because like it's, you know, there might be 90% t- tailwind, 10% headwind, but it's the headwind that will inevitably get most of the, your psychological and emotional energy. One of the great things about this passage in the anointing of David is it's the first time we see this idea of the Messiah really coming forward. The, the word Messiah means anointed to be king. And it comes up first in in Hannah's song back in 1 Samuel. Samuel is going to be the person who anoints the Lord's king. So Savior, you know, we say sometimes Messiah to mean Jesus is, is our Savior. Jesus Christ is our, you know, as our Savior. But really it means the Lord's anointed king. And that's what happens with Samuel. He anoints the Lord's king of Israel. Yeah, and it's interesting, too, because, like, you have this, you know, Hannah wants a child. Like, all the birth stories where there's infertility, like, you know, for instance, with Sarai or with here with Hannah, a child would be a blessing, right? And yet with Mary, who there's echoes of Mary of Hannah's song and Mary's song. The yes. Cat, but Mary doesn't want a child. And it doesn't enhance her social status. It makes her social status <laughs> problematic, the anointed one. So it's, and it, so it's interesting, too, because the, the, God's t- timing for salvation in the incarnation is not just like, you know, counterintuitive, but it's sort of like a, a weird reversal on the, on the birth narratives in the Old Testament. And then kind of paired with that, you have like Samuel's like, well, Certainly, uh, it's got to be one of these strapping guys, you know. <laughs> right, exactly. No, it's not. And remember, it's Samuel not. Samuel anointed um, Saul, and Saul was a foot taller, a head taller than everybody else in Israel. So, you know, you want the you want the you know uh, captain of the football team basically to be king, but David was not that. Yeah, and oftentimes I think the way. Um, God chooses. Well, I mean, the fact that He chooses any of us shows that God uh, God's choosing doesn't mean your choice. Um, Absolutely. In fact, the specific you know word that uh, God gives is you know, I look on the heart. I don't look yeah. on the outside. I look in the heart. 
Hello? I wish I was a little bit taller. I wish I was a baller. I wish I had a girl who looked good. I would call her. Wish I had a rabbit in a hat with a bat and a six-point parlor. I wish I was like six foot nine so I could give And that takes us on to our next reading, which is from the book of Ephesians chapter 5, verses 8 through 14. And here, uh, the author's exhorting the readers to conduct themselves uh, as befits those who've adopted the way of Christ. In baptism, they go from one kingdom to another, from darkness into light. Yes, but before we go there, we should look at the psalm of the day, which is Psalm 23. Everybody knows Psalm 23, right? The Lord is my shepherd. My shepherd. Well, and I, I remember many years ago, uh, this is a Davidic psalm, of course, very probably the most well-known psalm in all the Bible. And it it has a, a first few words uh, work out to some interesting uh, homiletical patterns, uh, if you will. I heard a preacher preach this many years ago. You know, the Lord is my shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd. That is the only one and only almighty, almighty God is the one who cares for me. The Lord is my shepherd. He's not a vague deity. He is the covenant Lord Yahweh of Israel. The Lord is my shepherd. That is presently. He is my shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd, right? Emphasizing each word. It's certainly that the covenant Lord and Savior of my people has unlimited power, but I confess now that he's my personal shepherd who cares for me. And the Lord is my shepherd. That is, he's the one who ultimately serves as my loving shepherd. Good good word. Which means we are sheep, which are not the sharpest animals in the animal kingdom, <laughs> or the swiftest. That's right. Now to Ephesians. Uh, now on to, to Ephesians. For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. It's so interesting, um, in the Mockingbird devotional day, uh, for the November 6th day, which is um, in the text is Ephesians 5, David Zoll writes this, of all the emotions associated with darkness, none is more powerful than depression. Those of us who have experienced it know that like darkness, depression is frightening. The great American writer David Foster Wallace was not exaggerating when he described depression as a large, dark, billowing shape, the billowing black sail of hell. Freud theorized that depression is anger turned inward. Child psychologist Dorothy Martin defines it as a loss of stature in your own eyes. As we all know, anger at oneself and loss of stature can be justified. In my own life, depression has always had a trigger, usually a perceived failure of some kind, something as significant as the breakup of a relationship or as trivial as the purchase of the wrong kind of air conditioner. And then he has this great paragraph. Still, anyone who has been depressed or dealt with a depressed person knows that it is a sickness that cannot be cured by the sufferer. No amount of telling a depressed person not to be depressed or explaining to them why they shouldn't be has any effect other than often making the situation worse. In fact, the condition feeds on itself to the point where the depression can become indistinguishable from the person. To a depressed person, the Apostle Paul's assertion that apart from the Lord, we are not only in darkness, but we are the darkness does not sound so far-fetched. Wow, great comment. Great comment. Yeah, this is a passage that's very fascinating to me because he, he basically says, you know, we are, we are light, so there's identity there. We have an identity in Christ that's different than our identity outside of Christ. Um, we are the light, he says. And then he speaks of that we should take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. I wonder what he had in mind there. I remember back at the origin of the Ephesian church when Paul says here that you are to take no part in unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. Remember the origin. There were a lot of people that were practicing magic in Ephesus, and that was. Uh, 
<laughs> in fact, there was a big book burning of magic books, if you read Acts 19 uh, and following. There was uh, some kind of thing going on there. So I wonder what Paul exactly is getting at when he speaks of exposing the darkness. Uh, maybe that's what he has in mind, uh, just people turning from the occult to Christ. Yeah, it's interesting about what magic, too, is that, you know, it's if, if, uh, if Luther says like the, the essence of sin is the it, it curve, the curve inward, right. To the self in, in, in a sort of depraved way, like, you know, what is magic other than trying to like, it, it plays on human superstition, but also on human desire to make the world over in their own, the image of their own desires. Just sort of, if I just had, I always, I used to do this, um, I used to do this exercise with undergrads to get to know them. I would say, okay, tell me who you, your name, you know, where you're from and what superpower you would have if you could have any superpower. You only get one. And it's really fascinating because, you know, what, what people want. I always liked Aquaman. Aquaman was my guy. <laughs> Dude, he had so little utility unless Superman <laughs> had kryptonite. You know what I mean? It's like, uh, that's why it was always Aquaman. You stay here with the Wonder Twins and guard the Hall of Justice. But if, <laughs> if, if, if there was a water tanker or something, you know. Shipwreck. Yeah, oh, Aquaman's great. The new Aquaman is quite fearsome as well. Which brings us, it's interesting because we have a theme here connecting these, you know, you have this. Yeah, light. Got, yeah, light and, and seeing because, you know, Samuel doesn't see quite in the right fashion when he's anointing the next king. And, and we have this Ephesians light and darkness. And then here, John 9, the man who was born blind, who is healed. Right, yeah. And yeah. just I mean, great. Uh, I feel like, do you think like there's this thing, if you've been a Christian a while, you, get, you, start, you start off with the gospel of John, right? And they get you into John. And then you're like, oh, well, you get sort of literary sophistication. You're like, oh, I like the Mark or the Synoptics. But then I feel like you go back to John and read it like in the deep ways. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like, absolutely. They give, it, they give it to you to Billy Graham. Because like, it's like, look, Jesus, it's clear. He's the son of God, the I statements. But there's such depth to John. Uh, yeah, there really is. In fact, I, I preached to John in the past few years. And the thing that, uh, that I've found to be so striking, uh, meaning pe many people know that through the first 12 chapters, you have the book of signs. And so those signs, I think, there are different ways to calculate the signs, but uh, my my reading on it is very chiastic. So the signs are parallel to one another, the first one being he's the new creator. He turns water into wine, chapter two. Then that parallels with the last sign, which is that he is living water, and water and blood flow from the cross. And if you don't think that's a sign, just read John nineteen thirty four, where there's a lot of language used of how astounding it is. You know, I saw this myself. I'm testifying that this is true as living water. Then you have he prevents the death of the nobleman's son in chapter four. That parallels with the resurrection and the life when he raises Lazarus. Then he's the true Sabbath when he heals the paralyzed man in chapter five. And there the text is go and sin no more. And then that parallels with the man born blind. And what does it say there? It didn't say, go and sin no more. It's, was this his sin that caused this? No, it was not his sin. And then at the center of this parallelism, you have the bread of life, the multiplication of the loaves, the the, ec, the new exodus, I would say that, because he has not only feeding the uh, 5,000, but also crossing the lake uh, as well. 
Yeah, and that's interesting. The whole question of like this focus on was it who's whose sin was it that he was born blind, his sin or, or his parents. And, you know, Jesus response is like, you know, you're, it's, you, this is an adventure and missing the point. Like his, his own suffering is an occasion for the display of the glory and grace of God here. Um, there's, there's a, on the Mockingbirds website, I think it was put up yeah today, a guy, Bill uh, Walker, who's a really smart guy, pastor. And I think he did his PhD in philosophical theology, young guy. Um, he wrote a review of the shack. It's not a. Um, it's. I think it, it would be a. I think he gives it about a C plus artistically, <laughs> but he does say that there are some important theological claims made in the movie, and I think it's interesting here to put that this in conversation with this text about this man and his suffering. He says first, God is more of a loving doctor trying to save a reluctant patient than a judge reluctantly offering mercy, um, and he just talks about how. That occurs in the story. Um, the lessons Mac ultimately learns on his journey is that God judges judges us um, worthy of love, even though we are also guilty sinners, and bears the consequences for that sin instead of condemning us. The second point he makes is God the Father is not immune to the human suffering of God the Son. Um, third, he says that God does not orchestrate the evil events of history, but God still uses them to bring about good. And the fourth thing he says that is salutary for in the film is that God desires for everyone to be forgiven and to receive that forgiveness. When we realize the love that has been extended to us, we often feel moved to share it with others. And you see that in, in the story, right? The people who are the, the religious establishment seem so angry <laughs> that someone was liberated and had their yeah, suffering right. alleviated. It's like, it almost seems like Jesus does this stuff on the Sabbath just to beat it through their heads. Yeah. It, I, I think he, 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 this is true in a couple of cases in the gospels. Jesus actually provokes the, the outrage of the Pharisees. Now I, I said in my, uh, my RCL devotional blog that, uh, just to read a sentence or two here, their system of righteousness, which included Sabbath work, kept them from seeing what was right in right in front of their face. The righteous yeah. but blind Pharisees responded that Jesus uh, is not from God because he does not keep the Sabbath. But the righteous, sorry, the unrighteous but seeing man, now healed by Jesus, reasoned, if this man were not from God, he could do nothing. So it's amazing, you know the 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 bad born blind had so much more insight into the simplest of things. Like, uh, hold on a second, if he weren't from God, could he do, could he do this? You know? Yeah, yeah. It's it's a you know. As I was reading um, from Dale Bruner's commentary on John, which is my favorite. I, I think it's a model commentary just in general. But in it, he quotes C. H. Dodd. Um, C.H. Dodd says the following. As sheer drama, this trial scene is one of the most brilliant passages in the gospel, rich in the tragic irony of which the evangelist is master. The one-time blind beggar stands before his betters to be badgered into denying the one thing of which he is certain. Uh, But the defendant proper is Jesus himself, judged in absentia. In some sort, the man whom Christ enlightens, pleads the cause of the light. When he is cast out, it is Christ whom the judges have rejected. Yeah. And also just to note the, the irony here uh, kind of sets up a pretty strong contrast between Jesus followers and the first century synagogue system with, uh, with its Pharisaic model that 
you know, you were born entirely in your sins, and are you teaching us? Of course, his teaching was perfectly brilliant, which is uh, God did this. So uh, apparently Jesus is from God. <laughs> uh, no one could, but God could do it. And so it says, so they put him out of the synagogue, right? So this is his first excommunication in the New Testament. And it happens to the man, you know, I once was blind, but now I see. And they put him out of the synagogue. So uh, what a what a travesty case of, you know, church discipline here. Yeah, it's funny. Uh, one time my old colleague Todd and I, this, this, this couple was visiting our church. We never met them before. They were an older couple. And they said, do you preach the gospel here? And I was like, what kind of question? I'd be like, oh, it happened once six months ago, but we shut that down. I mean, <laughs> you know say that? But it is interesting that that what scandalizes uh, the religious is is God showing up and actually forgiving, yeah, working, redeeming love and healing. Like, you know, it, 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 it's actually the actual arrival of grace sometimes is the thing that most scandalizes the religious. Absolutely. In fact, uh, preaching a bit through the lectionary text back in Matthew, through the Sermon on the Mount stuff a few weeks ago, uh, one, one commentator made this point that the, the Sermon on the Mount is not telling you how to be religious or not be religious. It's telling you two ways of being religious. You know, yes, the, the people yes. can either fast this way or fast that way. They can pray this way, pray that way. They can give this way or that way. And all these are religious duties. Um, people that are religious do these things. And you can do it either in one way, Christian, uh, in terms of Chris, Christ's own teaching, or you can do it another way in terms of your own uh, self-interested uh, response. Yeah, it's, I, I've heard Tim Keller say something akin to the fact that there's three approaches to life, the irreligious way, the religious way, and the gospel way, <laughs> which is, uh, yeah, the truer words, never spoken. Greg, thanks for spending some time um, with me doing this uh, reflection on these texts. Yeah. Thanks for listening to Same Old Song, the lectionary podcast of Mockingbird Ministries. To find out more about Mockingbird, go to our website, mbird.com. If you like what you heard, please go over to iTunes, give us a rating, and write a review, hopefully a favorable one. It helps so much. And maybe share it with a friend via social media. If you have thoughts, comments, or questions, feel free to email me at scottjones at mbird.com. Thanks again for listening, and we'll catch you next week.